Joining us today on the Anthony Bradley Show is Dr. Robert Tominski, author of Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace. Well, talk to us about the male psyche from boyhood through adolescence and into young adulthood. And what happens when male alienation leads boys and men to discharge their emotional problems into the outside world. We'll be discussing compulsive internet use, concepts of masculinity, processing emotions, and the role that fathers play in helping their sons through it all. I'm looking forward to having you join us for this eye-opening conversation. Hi there, and welcome to the Anthony Bradley Show. I'm so excited uh, today to have uh, with me uh, Robert uh, Tominski. And he wrote a fascinating book uh, titled Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace. And today's conversation, I've been looking forward to. I found this book uh, a few months ago, and I'm really excited about, about the opportunity. I just want to introduce him. Uh, really quickly, uh, Dr. Uh, Tominski is a psychologist and a Jungian analyst in San Francisco. Uh, also teaches uh, in the clinical uh, program of the Department of Psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. Uh, he works with adults dealing with issues like relationship turmoil, career change, creative obstacles, work stress, uh, major life transitions. He also sees children adolescents, as well as her parents, to treat a variety of family, developmental, and adjustment issues. He's published articles in different professional journals on topics about adolescence, addiction, group therapy, social skills development, and dreams. Uh, Dr. Tominski holds a doctoral degree in mental health from the University of California at San Francisco. He has an MBA from uh, the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley, uh, and for 14 years uh, has led a nonprofit organization devoted to treating uh, troubled children and their families. Uh, Dr. Chaminsky, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to talk with you. Could you just tell us a little bit about how you became interested in adolescence and the troubles that that uh, particularly boys have during during this period of their life. Well, I, I think a lot of it comes out of my experience. Uh, you know, you mentioned running this this nonprofit, which actually was a school in California. We call them non-public schools, which means that they're um, publicly funded, but they're they're usually under the umbrella of a private nonprofit. And uh, after I graduated, when uh, I, I finished my doctoral training at UCSF, I had done um, a fair amount of elective work working with children and with teenagers, uh, usually in schools and, and high schools or middle schools. And so um, there was a job open at this school. And initially, I was hired uh, as the clinical director. Um, and so I, I went there, and as things often happen in nonprofits, there's a high degree of unpredictability. Of and um, about six months later, I was promoted to be the executive director, and um, so so that really kind of um, 
was not something that I think I would have ever predicted. Um, and it was just one of those experiences where I thought, okay, I'm going to learn as much as I can. Most of the people in the program, so after that first year, were boys, uh, I would say up to 90%, and probably over 80% of them were racial and ethnic minority families. And so it was, uh, you know, it was different for me in that regard, and, and uh, I had a lot of learning to do at that time. And... Um, I, I just uh, kind of dove in, you know, as much as I could and talked a lot with families and, um, you know, I, I oversaw the clinical piece to some extent. I, I didn't treat any of the children or families myself. We had separate staff who did that. Um, but often, I, I, if there was a problem, I would sit in on some of those meetings. And certainly, families often came to me when they had an issue with something happening at the school. So, um, so after I finished that, I, you know, after it was one of those turning points where you sort of like think, okay, what am I going to do next? Um, I, I often say about the, the, the center was called Oaks. And I often say I stayed there for 14 years and probably should have only stayed for seven. Um, so uh, I'm a hanger on in that way. And, and uh, I, I decided I would do the Jungian analytic training and, um, and it was possible, you know, when I was setting up my private practice at that point for me, uh, there, there aren't a, a fairly high number um, percentage wise of uh, men uh, who work with children. And, and so, so it's, a, it's an area where there's some need. And so it, it just sort of worked out for me that way. So kind of yeah, a long answer. <laughs> right. No, that's that's fantastic. You know, I, I've, I've been I've been teaching. Uh, at the college level now for about 10 years. And before that, I taught high school for four years. And as I was reading the book, I was just sort of remembering so many young men that I've encountered who were in serious crisis. Um, and, and, and so many of them have never had opportunities to get help, and they actually don't understand some of the dots in their own story. Uh, yeah. It led to, for many of them, a lot of depression and anxiety, uh, some of their own uh, neuroses, and just a lot of confusion there. And, and so when I, when I came across this, this particular text, I was really excited to see the ways in which you, you connected some of these dots. It's super, super helpful. The first phrase in the title is, is male alienation. Can, can you tell us what, what alienation actually, actually is? Yeah. Um, so, so alienation is um, uh, well. D just a little, little bit about the history of the word. So, it actually comes uh, to us from French, and it was used there as a term to de designate insanity or mental disturbance. And the way it migrated into English. Uh, was similar. And so that around the turn of late kind of 19th century, early 20th century, uh, people who treated or worked in asylums and treated the mentally ill were called alienists. And, and the idea was is that, that uh, you know, very interesting, and of course we don't call, call ourselves that anymore, but 
Um, I think something about like uh, a, a kind of a gap, a severing of some, some connection, some important connection. And so alienation, there are two gaps, I think, that get created. And one is the, the more visible, obvious one, which is external, where a person isolates and, and will withdraw. And so that, that kind of uh, alienation is apparent to us as a behavior. But the, the kind that I really try and speak to in the book, and, and that I'm telling you a little about the history of the word, is the inner alienation. So something about a loss of connection with oneself and a feeling that, that, that you're really not at home in your own inner world, that there's something there that, that just uh, can't kind of be, uh, be at peace or that you can't really sort of dive into without uh, great distress. So, so there are those two, two pieces to it. Yeah, and as I was reading the book and, and thinking about my own story, I just remember how tumultuous uh, middle school and high school were for me, right, trying to sort all these things out. And this may be an obvious question, but can you really help us understand why it is that maybe puberty adolescence is such a difficult time with respect to the issue of, of alienation. Why, yeah. why is it that, that those, those years tend to be such a hard time at, at kind of understanding the inner life, particularly for boys? Yeah, no, that, that's a really great question. And, and I could probably talk with you the whole, the whole rest of the time just about that. But, but I, I, I think there are a lot of things that happen. You know, it's a transition time. It's, it's exciting. Um, there are physical, obvious physical changes that a, that a boy undergoes. I mentioned in the book that, um, that testosterone levels go up 30 fold, um, which is, that, that's a, that's a big jump, right? For anything to increase that much. And, and so I, I think there's a lot of excitement about the growth and about thinking about the future and what it will be like to be a young man, but it is a transition period. And during that transition, I, I think a lot of boys are finding their ways. And, and it, you know, where things are good enough, for most of us, it goes fine, right? We, we just muddle through and we take our, 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 our kind of falls and bruises and, and develop a thicker skin and, and we move on. But, um, but it is a trying and a testing time. And I think what happens um, that, that for boys that can make it particularly problematic is if there's a, a parental withdrawal and either the father or the mother at that time or both. And, and often, um, you know, especially nowadays, I think parents feel so worn down, especially during the pandemic and everything with all the... The running a school at home while they're also working. And, um, but there is generally a sense of like, okay, um, there's going to be a lot more behavioral challenges that are natural to that period. And sometimes parents don't like that. And, and you know, the sweet boy or sweet girl that they had is now a little bit like a monster. You know, it's the Jekyll and Hyde thing. And, and so sometimes parents withdraw on their side because they're tired or they're frustrated, or maybe that period in their own lives was problematic. 
Um, so there's, there's that piece to it, which I would say is the most immediate one. But then also the boys are casting about and they're looking for try, some answer to the question, how am I supposed to be? Mm-hmm. How am I supposed to look? How am I supposed to appear? And, and it's really interesting to think about these male ideologies that circulate and seem to have a life of their own. I, I, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I don't think there's any part of the country that's isolated from this or done it does it differently. But there are these ways in which, um, you know, boys can get carried away with a kind of masculine ideology that sometimes is toxic. Um, oftentimes is not toxic, but just very annoying. (laughs) Um, And um, that doesn't really make a lot of room for what goes on inside. And, and, And there tends to be a dichotomization that occurs because what goes on inside sometimes is, is like conceived as being feminine. Um, or feminizing. And that's extremely unfortunate. And, you know, again, for most of us, we get through that and we realize that isn't the case. But I I think for boys, there's a way in which um, one kid, uh, I think I I might mention him in the book, Uh, he was describing to me, he was 14, a problem with his girlfriend. And I said, well, what if you put yourself in her shoes, you know? And he looked at me like I was totally nuts. And he said, ooh, dude, who would want to do that? <laughs> and so just even the idea of trying to, you know, get a little more internal in that way, uh, you know, this was a perfectly, you know, in many ways, nice kid, but he had picked that up as something about what it means to be a, a kind of a, te- a boy teenager at that phase of life that, Looking inside is uh, uh, a bit of a dicey proposition. Right. And to make matters worse in 2020 uh, versus, say, 1820, there's some additional opportunities, I think, for boys to get the messaging wrong and maybe confusing. Uh, and, and the Internet just provides, you, you think about Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat and, and YouTube and all these shows that don't help with the sorting of, of the questions that you, that you pose. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, how is, how is the, the Internet not, not, a, not the best place? Or how, how can the Internet cyberspace sort of complicate these, these issues for boys in particular? Yeah, well, you, you just mentioned those, those social media platforms, and I, I you know, I, the one thing I would throw in there is video gaming too, because for a lot, especially for a lot of boys, um, that's the, where their social media piece occurs. You know, they're chatting, or they're they're on Discord or something, or they're on a mic and they're you know chatting with one another while they're playing the game. Um, I think you know it. It starts out innocently enough because I think I think one one thing that the kids in general, but uh, you know, with again without trying to be too binary here, might be slightly more true for boys, is something about like looking for an adventure, 
And, and so, so, so they, go, they often go on the internet thinking, oh, this is going to be a big adventure. I'm going to find something that nobody knows about or that only a few people know about. And I'll be in this special in-group, something like that. And, um, and then often, uh, y- you know, they, they, they end up kind of going down the rabbit hole. And this happens a lot because, especially on a platform like YouTube, they, YouTube... I think they've modified the algorithm or whatever it's called from public pressure from parents and, and parents groups and children rights groups, but, but they had this intensification. So I've heard this, a version of this story many times where a boy, you know, 13, 14, 15 is interested in conservative um, politics. So he'll go on YouTube and listen to, you know, some conservative politician. And then the algorithm will suggest, you know, like, okay, you've listened to 20 hours with this guy. How about, and then it'll pop up somebody who's a little bit more extreme. And so then they'll listen to that person. And then before they know it, they're in the alt-right, you know, neo-Nazi white supremacist universe. And that's where they get into trouble. That's where they get into big trouble. And the adventure has clearly overtaken them. And and so that part of it about using the internet for adventure, I, I think there's actually something good to that. But I I so wish that 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 there was also like a sense of like not valuing just that, but like the adventures in the real world. Like, you know, you go to a camp for a couple of weeks in the summer and you see what happens, that sort of thing. Yeah, so it it seems that perhaps boys that are uh, maybe more vulnerable to this don't have any other opportunities for adventure, right? Don't have any other opportunities to sort of have those questions answered, to sort of deal with alienation and the inner life and here comes the internet with all of these portals that you can enter into and the next thing you know an hour later two hours later two weeks later six months later uh you're in a little tribe right and you get you get you get a dopamine hit from all that engagement right right exactly yeah yeah i I think they, they there isn't the perspective about what's happening and and as it is happening and, and that actually is a, a cognitive thing that kind of develops through adolescence anyways. And so, you, you know, we, again, that's where, where parental kind of like conversations can be helpful. Like, why were you watching? What were you watching there for five hours? And, and you know, can, can we look at what you looked at last together for a few minutes? And, um, you, you know, just trying to, to sort of, uh, understand a little bit, like like what what's he really interested in there? The other thing I'll, I'll say about this, the, the attraction of the internet, and again, I, I don't think this is entirely a bad thing. I just think it's somewhat misplaced. But uh, Jungians have this idea of, of numinosity, that there are experiences in life. Uh, you have, I saw you have a background in religious studies and are theologians, so you probably know this actually maybe better than I do, but the idea of numinosity, that there are things bigger than ourselves, 
that somehow are awe-inspiring and that we can't explain. And they tap into the spiritual dimension of who we are. And I'm not saying that that kids are doing this because they're not going to church. Don't get me wrong. But I I think there is something about a a kind of, it's very unconscious, but a very unconscious pull about that piece of human experience that that the, the internet with these glowing screens and the the magic of you press a button and you know same day the thing is at your door um, or you can create a fake identity and and you know see how that goes all these things are are kind of like tinkering a little bit in what I would call that numinous territory of human experience and again it's I'm not I'm not trying to pathologize it it's just like does it really belong there? Are you really going to find it there? Yeah, that is, that is so perceptive. You know, I, I think what, what I've found in my, in my own work is that the adolescent boys, I think as, as a lot of men are in general, are just drawn to these larger narratives. They want to be part of a larger story. We're drawn to these, you know, we, we love action movies and thrillers and, and, and heroes and things like that. And, and I think in modern life, especially sort of suburban, sort of normal, middle-class life, that part of life just isn't really there. It has to be manufactured, unlike in, in sort of tribal ancestral cultures where you actually have to go fight the enemy or there's something impending real danger. There's a need for the hero. And so um, it's, it's interesting because what I, what, what I find is there's, there's, this, there's this desire to connect to this, this narrative, right? There's a desire to connect with the story. And there's a desire to connect with other guys also kind of, you know, drawn to this larger narrative, this larger story, this big mission that draws them out, sort of transcendent. But there's not real connection, right? Mm-hmm. There's just sort of the, the perception of, of, of connection. And, and you mentioned it in the book about dark zones. And I'm wondering if you could talk uh, a little bit about, about what that is. You sort of talk about the, the illusion of companionship and connection and power and control. And, and some of these platforms, especially video games, I think give, give adolescent boys a sense of that, but it's not really real, right? So how, how, do, how, do, how do these dark zones work and how does a boy end up in there? Yeah, well, again, I think I think that's a, a very interesting question because I, as you were just kind of preparing me there a little, I, I realized like it's also another piece of of like human experience, which is we all we all have, you, you know, again, Jungians use this term, the shadow, and and so we all have something about us that has to do with, you know, kind of these parts of ourselves that that make us squirm or that we wish weren't there, or that we wish could be very different. And, you know, again, for most of us, we repress it or we compartmentalize. Somehow it's, it's not an issue, but it is a part of, a part of us. And, and I think this, this kind of experience of like, um, you know, what, what is our darkness? What is my darkness? That there's something about that, that these, <laughs> these dark zones... Um, in the case, I think I was referring to um, 
uh, where I use that term, those two boys, I mean, they, they were specifically, uh, one of them was searching the dark web. So that's, that's kind of, uh, you, you know, uh, and he actually, I said, I said, well, I didn't understand this at the time. So this was several years ago. I said, what is the dark web? And he, he like looked at me like I was nuts. And, and, but he explained it to me and he said, you know, this is where there are these really shady, dark zones and um, where people can, you know, buy guns and drugs and much worse stuff. And um, so, so then he started to educate me about some of the other dark zones on the internet. And one, one of these places is are these image boards. So the two that you, you might have heard of, because they're, they're again, they're just vulgar, disgusting things, but um, they're often in the news are 4chan and 8chan. And uh, again, <laughs> 4chan started out innocently enough as a uh, anime and manga site. Um, so for for aficionados of, of you know Japanese cartoon and and it's cartoon in the the big C cartoon sense, um, uh, animation. But what they've evolved into are are these uh, hateful, racist, misogynistic. Um, boards where people can post, you know, just the most repulsive stuff. And the message somehow, at least in my understanding, and it may be different now, but but it used to be that the idea the message would disappear after you, your post was up for minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. So, so it kind of gave this uh, sense of like, you could say the most outrageous, awful thing you wanted. It was like giving permission for, you, you know, really that. And um, I was teaching a class at, at our institute, our Young Institute in San Francisco last year. And these were all adult, you know, well-trained adult therapists, probably with an average of 25 years experience. But many of them worked with adolescents. And so I asked them if any of them had heard about 4chan or 8chan and they said no. And I said, well, how about, you know, we had a computer thing and a projector so I could say, if I have your permission, I said, you're not going to like what you see. And I don't mean to offend anybody, but would you like to see at least a page of what this looks like? Because this is what a lot of boys are, are looking at. And they, they said, yes, well, everybody's jaw. was <laughs> just like, and they, I didn't click on, they were just seeing the subject lines. Um, I didn't click on any of the posts because I didn't, I didn't want to go that far. Um, and so, so that, that kind of darkness, I think, you know, it, it, we all explore that in our adolescence. We all look for like, you, you know, you mentioned horror films and, um, you, you know, the attraction for, for, you know, those certain kinds of things that, that, that we all kind of look at, look as a piece of like growing up, but it really has to do with something internal to us about our own unconscious and, and an awareness of like, oh, that's a part of us too. But when kids are doing this, they have no awareness of that. Yeah. And it, it really makes me concerned in this code environment with, with as much disconnection and isolation where you have adolescent boys spending so much time alone. 
in their bedrooms where they would have been at school for the, you know, six, seven, eight hours a day. Now they're at home. They might do three, four hours of work and then they're just there. Their parents are working. There may be chaos and this may be for many of them a way to escape the chaos and sort of to sort of get some order. And it, it ends up being a really, really, really dark place. And I think it's, it's also important to note, I think this is especially important for, for parents, those who work with adolescents, you know, boys are different, right? Many of them don't have, not all, but, but most uh, really struggle with putting words to their emotions, right? Can, can, you, can you explain to us what's going on in a, in a boy's life that he can't put the English language to his feelings and, and why that's such a struggle? Yeah, well, that, that's, again, great question. There, there's actually a funny uh, uh, term for it. It's called normative male alexithymia, uh, which is a highfalutin way, that would be my, my grandmother talk, and a highfalutin way of saying um, that, uh, uh, that, that boys don't like to communicate or can't communicate very well about what's happening inside themselves. So the alexithymia is about reading your inner emotional states and then being able to not only make sense out of them, but say something about them. And so, so a lot of researchers into, the, into this sort of particular area have, have looked at like, you know, there, there's always been this sense of like when you talk about maturity levels, particularly for emotional and social maturity, a 15-year-old girl and a 15-year-old boy, typically, we're just talking in a, you pick one out of a crowd, are going to be operating kind of in very different ways. And, and some of it has to do with that emotional vocabulary. Now, some boys just don't have the emotional vocabulary. Um, and, and so, you know, when they show up like in my office or in, in anybody's office who's going to be working with them, one of the tasks is like helping them to realize like what is an emotion? What is a feeling? How do you recognize it? What makes this different from that one? and helping them then to be, to be basically kind of have the building blocks to describe different emotional states. So that's, that's one sort of, and that, that, that kind of problem is very remediable, right? Because it's basically like you, you just, you, you need to kind of spend a little bit of time thinking about what's going on and coming up with words for it. A different problem are the, the boys who, um, just can't access what's inside them. And I, I, when I teach about this, I use these, these different uh, slides of houses, you know? And so for this, this kind of boy, it's a boarded up house, like, you know, that looks like nobody has gone inside it in probably 10 years. And, and so that, that's a bit of a different problem because you, you have to think about like, why does he need that much protection? Um, what, what's going on that, that makes this so dangerous? And you have to be extremely careful because there's a reason that place is boarded up. 
and you don't want to go barging in. So, so that's a different category of problem for um, being able to talk about what's inside if you're saying, no, nobody's going there at all. And then the third, the third group would be what I would say is much more um, boys who, who uh, so they can get inside and they have the words and they could communicate the words, they just don't want to. And so that's a, a, a motivational issue. And often that, that, that goes back to what I was saying a little bit ago about like, yeah, if I start talking that way, I'm going to sound like a girl or people will think I'm gay or it, it, it just gets into this territory of like, if you talk about your feelings, how is it going to look to others? And so, so that's, that's, that's actually, again, a relatively remedial remediable situation to work with because the boy has the, the basic tools. It's just there's something about um, social perceptions and self-image that are clouded. And tell me what you think of this, of this thesis, that a lot of boys, a lot of teenage guys, maybe even in their early to mid-20s, are free to do that with these sort of anonymous personalities on various platforms on 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 the, on the internet, right? So they can they don't have to worry about those associations if I'm um, you know screen head two, and I I can share things and there, there's all these o- online communities where and and even even during video gaming, right? They'll sort of be talking to each other, but but they won't really give their, their true identity. So there's some, there's some freedom there. And so my, my speculation, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but is that, is that some, some guys, uh, particularly adolescents, sort of run to the internet so that, so that they can be anonymous just to have a place to work some of those emotions out. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right because it gives them permission under a cloak, right? So, so if they have the disguise, um, and that then they feel like they can, they're in a way they have a greater degree of freedom to to say what otherwise they might not communicate. The other thing that that does too is it, it often will link them up with like-minded boys or young men. And that that amplifies. So that's the echo chamber effect of the of these kind of isolated groupings on the internet. I I was reading. Uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but one of these communities are the incels, right? The the guys who think that they're involuntarily celibate because of feminism. I mean, I'm simplifying here for for sake of time. And I was reading today, I, I think it's in today's New York Times, this rather long article about how uh, a, a particular subgroup of, of this incel community has adopted these two British uh, orth- orthodontists. So they do like braces and constructive surgery and that sort of thing, who have this kooky theory um, that, that, um, that, that there's a way in which our faces look different because of the way we eat and, and, uh, the way we were raised. And, but for this incel community, what the guy, the author of the article was saying is, is that 
they like this theory because it explains why they're unattractive. <laughs> and I was just like, wow, if you really are going to go that far, that that's saying something. Yeah. So, it, yeah. It, it speaks so much for the desire you know, for acceptance and connection and, and things like this. And even, even if guys think it's not entirely masculine to express that as a real need, right? And, and to also, I think, express uh, feelings of, of hurt with respect to rejection and, and the inability to uh, connect. You know, I'm, as, a, as, a, as an African-American man, I've been most of my professional career as a minority in uh, sort of predominantly white spaces. And I, I wonder, I, you know, you introduced uh, uh, earlier by saying that you uh, did some work primarily with, with minority uh, uh, students. And, and there's a sense in which I believe there's an additional layer of alienation or at least feelings of, of alienation when you're a minority in a predominantly white, either affluent or just sort of a, a subculture. Have, have you have you found that to be a, a, an an additional burden that that complicates this, or is it or is it minor? Oh no, I I think it's huge. I, I mean, we we live in a racist uh, society, a racist country. Um, I, I think it's huge. It's it's not it's not just uh, uh, what would be the the right word like like it's not just a a, a minor stressor. It's it's almost like a, a major infection that that we have socially um, and individually. And and I I think um, lack of recognition around that and, and a, a lack of wanting to to talk about you know, how it feels and what it means and what gets misunderstood. That, that's a whole extra layer, like you said, of experience that, that um, you know, most white people don't have to deal with, that, that, that they just take it for granted. Um, you, you know, um, I was listening to Kamala Harris last night, and, and I think she said one of the things that she said that really stayed with me is there's no vaccine against racism. And, um, you, you know, again, you, you just think about like privilege and entitlement and you think about health care and all these things and you think like, yeah, I, 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 somebody will take care of it. It'll be fine. But I, I think for our communities of color, that, that's not a base assumption that things are going to be just fine. And, and so that, that's a huge, a huge problem. Yeah. So it, it seems that if you're working with boys, young men who are, who are minorities, I think, I think there, there needs to be some, some extra attention paid to this additional layer of, of alienation and providing support and really intentionality to, to, to potentially address it and allow them to have some space to speak about it. Um, you know, I, I was I was I was really fascinated as a as a theologian. I'm, I'm, I'm broadly fascinated by the Jungian school in general. Uh, but in, in in the book, you you sort of bring in the, the book of Revelation and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is 
uh, even even for people within the context of the church, it's just a scary part of the book. You don't want to talk about that. It's just <laughs> monster. You know, they're coming to punish and they're mean. And and you know, w- one of the things that I've I've learned in, in my own reading is that that boys often externalize their pain, and and as you mentioned in the book, it can sort of turn them into uh, these difficult figures, sort of monsters. There's just kind of deep, deep, sort of dark, dark part of us. Um, what I'd like to do now is sort of go through these four horsemen and just give sure. you, just sort of give us a short description of, of each of those and maybe an example of what it looks like in, in real life when you see, uh, you know, guys who are, who are externalizing uh, some, some of these issues. The, the first one we talked about is the, is the red horse. What is, what is that? So the, the red horse uh, carries a sword. Um, the rider carries a sword. And, and I think by red, they mean the color was like chestnut, you know. And, and, um, uh, and so, so that, to me, that, um, it, you know, that, that, that particular image. So I think this apocalyptic imagery is very prevalent. So let me just start giving that as a statement. In, in a lot of these video games, they're set either in apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic, I can't even say it, settings. But like you see it in, in, in a lot of the, the horror genre, the, the, walk, the popularity of The Walking Dead, the zombie films. Um, so it, so it's, it's something that's been around for a while. So, so I don't think it's just a, a completely random sort of thing that I, I settled on. But the, 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 yeah, the red horse would be particularly this idea of using that sword in an aggressive way. So these are the guys who act out and um, where they, they, they act out in a way that there's a real risk of violence. And so um, in the book, I think I give an example of, a, of one of the mass shooters um, uh, I, I picked an example in, in Germany just because we have so many of them in the U.S. that I, 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 I was thinking like, well, this is a way to at least show that it's not just the U.S. Um, and he, he was obsessed with uh, a couple of video games that he had gotten banned from because his behavior was so bad. And, and so, so that, you know, that kind of aggression, um, that, that, that really, I think, again, if you look at the statistics is so much, I mean, phenomenally higher among boys and young men than among girls and young women. Um, that seems to be part of, uh, our, our male, um, you know, dilemma, um, and so, so the risk of real violence is, is huge. I, I, I gave an example in a talk that I gave last year um, in Vienna, and this, this, this boy was becoming more and more isolated, and um, uh, he, was, uh, he, he himself had been bullied but he wanted revenge. And so what, what he did is he went on the dark web and he started researching how he, what he would have to do to get a gun and um, to buy the gun, to get a, 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 I'm not even sure, like he had some 
scheme like for an address so it wouldn't come to the house and um, and luckily his father during a computer upgrade <laughs> unearthed um, the father was in IT and the father unearthed the search history so that that's where you, you know you, you're like at a tipping point and so that red horse I think is something about that um, you know kind of bloodthirstiness yeah, great. What's the what's the white the white horse? The white horse. Um, so that rider wears uh, a crown and carries a bow and arrow, and and is interpreted, um, you know, to mean conquest. And and so, but I I think the the, the tricky thing about the 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 white horse is is that it it also is something about a kind of up and down. So it's it's about conquest, but then what happens after the conquest? And I, I think that's that up-down cycle, inflation, deflation, uh, mania, emptiness. That, that's what you see in a lot of addictions and compulsions. And so when, when boys and young men get really into something and they can't stop themselves, and it could be drugs, could be alcohol, could be video games, um, could be social media, you know, for that matter, being able to limit themselves and stop themselves, that seems to me to be a factor of that up and down cycle that they're trying to man manage some sort of emotional pain in a way that, that just isn't working. Very good. How about the black horse? The black horse, car that rider carries a set of scales. And so, um, I, again, you, you might know biblically, I think that that was associated with famine, right? Like that right. somehow the scales would weigh the grain. And um, so I, I think psychologically, if you think about famine, you think about deprivation. And these are often guys who, um, you know, sometimes come, I'm not talking about physical deprivation or uh, resource deprivation, but emotional deprivation, and often have backgrounds where there, there's a kind of coldness or rejection in the family. And um, what happens is when that, that's too much, there isn't something to compensate for that, you get an empathy deficit. So these guys often have tremendous empathy deficits, but they're also quite greedy, and, uh, which makes some sense because they're trying to make up for what they feel like they never got. And um, so that greediness can be, can be very, very problematic as well. Yeah, and when there's a an empathy deficit plus greed, uh, that can really turn into something dangerous, right? Very, very dangerous. Yeah, I I was reading a review of Mary Trump's book, you know, of course, and she's a clinical. She trained as a clinical psychologist, and so it's very interesting to you know, hear some of her perceptions about her uncle. And, I, you know, you can kind of see some of this there, that, 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 that there was a problem in the family, something emotionally depriving, and, and this kind of massive greed that's insatiable. Um, you know, and it's not just greed for money, but for attention. Absolutely. Oh. One of the projects I'm working on, I'm, I'm, I'm writing a book on, on why boys join fraternities. And if you think about, at least in my own work, some of the, the, the sort of stereotypes uh, of frat culture, 
to bring a, a, a 18, 19 year old with an empathy deficit and greed plus alcohol, right? Right. Yeah. Plus no supervision plus women. I mean, you get, it's a toxic cocktail. Uh, that I think that that often leads to a lot of, I think not only self-harm, but also harming, harming others. That, that empathy yeah. deficit really is, is, is quite, is quite alarming. How about the pale horse? So the pale horse is, uh, again, like, uh, um, that, that's one <clears throat> that, that rider sometimes carries a scythe and is followed by, um, uh, Hades or, or some representative of hell. And so that, that's really about like death. And, and I, I think, um, the, the pale horse shows up, I think when you, when you get, um, and I've had this happen in, in my practice, and certainly it's it's not uh, totally uncommon when you work with adolescents nowadays, self-harming behavior, so um, cutting, um, which is more typical of, of girls and young women, but but actually does show up in, in, in boys and young men as well. And then these, these kind of accidents that aren't really accidents, so or recklessness leads to, you know, car accidents or, um, you know, climbing and falling from a great height. I've had that happen in my practice. Um, you know, I hear a lot about um, skateboarding. <laughs> accidents um and so so the, the, this is where you know like there's really something despairing that that is feeling like there isn't a future and i think that pale horse is is like cutting off the future and certainly i, I think in the biblical interpretation that that that's like uh, you know you're you're kind of being basically shepherded towards hell so there's no redemption there and and so i think that that's a very very concerning presentation um yeah would would, would this particular uh, presentation make an adolescent more vulnerable to suicidal ideation absolutely absolutely yeah yeah the example i give in the book is is uh i, I mean it, it's from years ago um when i was uh hadn't finished my training and um just you, you know the the guy he was a young man but you know just out of adolescence age-wise and um you know really really awful two awful suicide attempts and um within a year and mm. so um so definitely you think about like that that kind of despair and and really a sense of what's the point so yeah i've i've been fascinated in some of the reading that i, I did over the summer that parents have an amazing opportunity to prevent alienation. Uh, I think they have an opportunity to really speak into their children's lives and provide them the emotional space that they need to, to grow and thrive and have agency. I'm particularly interested in, in the role of the father. What I find is that a lot of dads don't know how important they are, and they don't really know how much their sons need them. Can you just sort of if you were sort of talking to a room full of dads uh, who have adolescent boys, sort of grades six to 12, what, what, would, you, what would you tell them about, about why they're so important and, and what they can do and, what, and why they're needed now, or why, why, why they're so important in, in their son's life? 
Well, I, I think you, you just said something that I would probably want to start with, which would be, why would they think they're not needed? You, you know, that, that's, that's actually a very sad thought, you, you know, and, and uh, um, so, so I think I, I, I might, I might start <laughs> with something about like canvassing the room about like how many of you believe that, how many of you think you're not, you're not necessary or needed for your, you know, 12, 14, 16 year old son. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes what happens is that, that often, um, uh, you know, fathers sometimes get frustrated with the rambunctiousness of this period and the testing, the rebelliousness, and um, the, the need, the real, the real important need for um, limits and and I, I'm, I'm not meaning that necessarily just in a disciplinarian kind of way but like you know being able to, to know when to stop when when enough is enough that and that's you know um, moms do that I, I'm not trying to say they don't but but dads need to be involved in that too and particularly with their sons. Um, the idea of the adventure that I mentioned earlier, too, I, I think like, you know, like adolescence is an adventure. I mean, any part of childhood, really. And so, so like, why wouldn't the dad want to be part of that? Like, like to create, you know, your own adventure with, with your son in some way. And maybe it's a yearly fishing trip. Maybe it's a you know, a yearly, you know, it could be something that it doesn't have to be something that's, that's like that complicated, but that's something that repeats and that has a little bit of the two of you are, you know, going off on your own and you're going to, you know, spend a week at the farm or what, whatever it's going to be. Um, and that creates stories and those stories are so vital to, to all of us. But you think about like alienation. Part of alienation is not knowing where a story is, like not even being able to locate the story. Mm. And so, um, you know, my father used to drag me to a farm. Uh, his parents had a farm in upstate New York. And he used to drag me there uh, weekly and in the summer sometimes for a whole week. And I'm sure I was mouthy and I protested. But when I look back, I am so glad he did that and so thankful to him because I have so many stories about that time on the farm. Um, so, so that's the kind of thing. And the other thing I guess I would say is that numinous piece that I mentioned earlier too. Fathers can help with that. And, and I, I don't mean like, oh, you have to take your kid to church kind of thing. But you can talk about like, what do things mean? You hmm. know, like, what do you think, you know, have some of those big conversations. Don't, don't shy away from those, those big conversations about who do you want to be and how do you make meaning out of things and what do you do when it seems like there isn't meaning. Um, those are so important. Yeah, I think, I think sometimes some parents feel uh, ill-equipped or, or, or unable to connect with their own children uh, that that way, and and they feel like, well, I, I, you know, he's he's not talking, right? He should have shut down. I don't know how to deal with it. And, and I just want to say, well, just engage, right? Spend right. time, 
<laughs> right? It takes time, right? I think you mentioned this in the book that it take the boys often open up in the context of time spent together, right? So it's not just sort of 10 minutes. It might be a road trip where three hours into the oh. trip or maybe on day two, the kid finally opens up, right? Yep. Well, that's so funny you say that because I, I, as you were saying it, I was also thinking about a, a, a dad that uh, I was trying to get to spend more time with his son who was doing those kinds of things, like not talking to him or, you know, you know, the kind of one word shrugs, that sort of thing. And I said, I said to the dad, I said, well, is there ever any point that you can think of where he does talk more with you? So he thought about it and he said, well, it's funny. He, he talks to me when he's in the car and like when I'm driving him places or when, you know, we're going to pick up takeout and something like that. So I actually said, why don't you go on a road trip, the two of you? And it, he came back and it was so funny that the, the first thing that dad said to me is he wouldn't shut up. You know, <laughs> it's just a chatterbox. <laughs> so, so I, you have to meet them where they're at, but I think what you're saying is really significant too, that it, it requires effort. Right. This is, this is really, really fantastic. I, I, I you know, really want those that work with, with teens and adolescents and, and young men to have, especially their parents, they really have permission to, to engage. And, and I'm, I'm wondering, as we, as we wrap up, uh, there may be people who listen to this and now they're worried about their son. Uh, how, how should they get help if they have rather two things? One, what, what should they be looking for? Which, what are some of the signs and symptoms of alienation? And then lastly, if they're, they have concerns, uh, how, how should they go about getting help? Well, the, the main, you know, kind of behavior, well, there are two behavioral things that I, I would say. Well, one is that withdrawal. And so if you're, if you're really getting a sense that, that your, your boy is withdrawing from you um, and, and like your attempts to reach him are not going anywhere, that, that is cause for concern. And then coupled with that, the second thing are, are, are like, um, um, I'm not quite sure how to put it, but, but like random changes of behavior coupled with the withdrawal. So like if all of a sudden he seems unusually silly or all of a sudden he seems high, you know, or drunk or, um, you know, kind of like that, it, that's often that vacillation, that's the behavior trying to communicate something. And so, so parents would have to be attentive and then, you know, like realize, okay, this is a, a, a message. It's, it's encoded. It's encoded in the behavior and the parents, the parents' duty then is to try and just be aware of it. They don't have to do the decoding, but say, hey, look, something's not right here. We, we need to, to get some help. And as to where to turn to, I mean, there are lots of local, most uh, states and, and cities, but even for people who are in, in more rural or small town settings, there are local professional organizations, sometimes at the county level. And those are good resources. I mean, those are good places to turn to. You can often get a referral for a therapist from them. Um, they often, you know, will, will know who, who works more specifically with adolescents and young adults. 
And um, so that, that, that's probably the best place. I was going to say there's also health plans, but my experience with people, at least in California, turning to the health plans is, is I don't want to say exactly miserable, but, but it's not as, um, you, you know, they have a duty to provide referrals. And often what they'll do is email a list with 100 therapists, and the parent just doesn't know what to do with that list then. So, um, so I think your local professional organizations online, you know, sometimes Googling like, you know, therapist for boys near me, that kind of thing. Um, there, there are a lot of online resources now too. And a lot of, uh, you know, the big major mental health organizations, um, have an online presence. This is really, really fascinating. Uh, Dr. Robert Tominski, the author of Male Alienation at the Crossroads of Identity, Culture, and Cyberspace. If you work with adolescents in any capacity, I would highly recommend uh, this book. It will open up uh, so much about their world and provide some opportunities to have some real effective interventions. I learned so much from this. So thank you. Thank you so much for explaining this to us. And I, I'm going to do everything I can to get as many people to get this book in their hands as possible. Robert Tominski, thank you very much. Thank you. I really appreciated talking with you. <laughs>